Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. I'm honored and pleased to welcome Rabbi Arthur Green, who is the founding dean and is currently rector of the Rabbinical School and Irving Brudnick Professor of Jewish Philosophy and Religion at Hebrew College in Boston. He's both an historian of Jewish religion and a theologian, and he's one of the most prominent voices in the English-speaking world in the ongoing work of bridging these two distinct fields of endeavor. Rabbi Green, it's a great pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Wonderful to be here with you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure for me. So I want to ask, why on earth do we need to be reminded that joy is such a great idea? Wonderful question. Because human beings have often a tendency to sadness, to excessive self-examination, to insecurities, to the kinds of things that lead us away from joy. Uh, We have an awful lot of American Jews in this generation who have become Buddhists. And Buddhism, after all, begins with human life is essentially about suffering. Suffering. And how do you escape suffering? So there clearly are people who need to be reminded of joy. (laughs) (laughs) But you're saying something more than that. You're saying that there's even a human propensity to a a kind of, uh, uh, it's not a bleakness, but it's a seriousness, introspection tends towards the serious, is what you're basically saying. Yes, there are things that pull us away from the natural joy, which I think is what we were created to to fulfill. Well said. And that's much of the message of Hasidism, by the way. Baal Shem Tov's insistence on Avodat Hashem B'Simcha, on serving God in joy, as being the essential uh, function of human life, was a statement that excessive... uh, Self-examination, a guilt, and so on, pull one away right. and even from the joy that one should, yes, even even yeah. too much studiousness pulls one away from the joy that is the very essence of, of what life is. You refer to yourself as a neo-Hasid, so help help us understand what neo-Hasidism actually is and, and give us some examples. What does it look like? What, what, what does it... Sure. A neo-Hasidism means a Judaism that is inspired by the teachings and the examples of the Hasidic masters, especially the Hasidic masters of the late 18th century. Without accepting the later Hasidic strictures on opposition to modernity, on rejection of modern education, the very uh, extreme views of halakhic practice and so on that came to characterize Hasidism, say, after 1815, when Hasidism became something of a reaction to incipient modernity. Um, so those key ideas of the early Hasidic masters, I'll tick off three or four or five of the, of the key ideas. Serving God in joy is the purpose of human life. And anything that just takes one away from the, uh, from the joy of God's service is a dangerous distraction. God is to be found everywhere. Everything contains the divine presence. And your job is to uplift the sparks of divinity, to find sparks of divinity or the presence of God, even in the most unlikely places. For the Hasidim in the 18th century, that meant when talking to Gentile customers in the marketplace in your shtetl. But for us, it may mean how do you find sparks of holiness in the, in the Avodah Zarah, in the idolatries created by Hollywood, Wall Street, and all kinds of other people where we find, where we find the idolatries of our time. Uh, we have to oppose not the idolatry of Mesopotamia and uh, Egypt, as our ancestors did, but the idolatries of, uh, of pornography, the idolatries of Wall Street values. So all those things, I think, are, are, are part of neo-Hasidism for me. 
Neochastism means that it is possible to have a direct, unmediated experience of the Divine Presence, and that that's what religion is all about. Uh, the customs and ceremonies and practices and music and stories and history are all there to bring you to a direct encounter with the One. You may use that G-O-D word, or you may use another word, the One, the Absolute Being itself. Uh, yud heh vav heh, the name of God in Hebrew does not translate God as far as I'm concerned, but translates best as is, was, will be. Being in contact with that, direct contact with that sense of the presence of divinity. The purpose of the tradition is to bring you to that moment, everything, all the ancillary aspects of religion are there in order to open you up, to bring you to a direct encounter with the Absolute, with the One, and then also, just as important, to help you reintegrate that moment, that, shall we call it a Sinai moment in life, a peak moment in life, with the ordinary daily life of a human being in a community. So that does bring me to my next question, which is that specifically in relation to Hasidic practice, you've referred to ecstatic prayer as having wings. That's a beautiful image. That's not mine. That's, no, the, no, that's I, right yeah, out of yeah. the sources. Yes, That's yeah. right out of the sources. Ahava, love and awe are the wings that make prayer fly. A previous generation of reform prayer books also have on the wings of prayer. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. so yes, it's a beautiful image for a reason. It's a common image because it's beautiful. Prayers for the birds. Prayers. <laughs> that actually is my question. Speaking not scientifically or sociologically, but experientially as a Jew in the pew, I experience two extremes among fellow Jews. Those who yearn to stretch and exercise those wings, and on the other hand, a, a significant, maybe even a strong majority of Jews who find it very off-putting even to go there, even to to consider that kind of... I mean, forget ecstatic prayer. If you say ecstatic prayer, already you're beyond the pale for many, many Jews. But even a, a self-consciously spiritualized approach to prayer seems to be a, a hurdle for a lot of Jews. So do you read the Jewish experience the same way I'm describing it? And, and what do you make of it? I do read it that way. I want to respond in two different ways. Okay. Uh, First, out of the Hasidic sources. There is a verse in the book of Deuteronomy talking about the final exile where God says, Moses hears God saying, On that day I will hide, hide my face from you. The earliest Hasidic book, very first Hasidic book on his first page, quotes that verse and says, Why does it say hide twice? He says there are two kinds of hiding. There's one kind of hiding where you lost something, you go look for it, you know something is hidden, and I'm going to go search for that thing I lost. But then there's a deeper kind of hiding where you don't even know something's missing. Mm-hmm. And that's the hiding of hasterast here. You don't even know there's something to look for. The reason that verse is quoted on the first page of the first Hasidic book is to tell you, once you've read this book, you may not have found it, but you'll know there's something yeah, to look for. That's, that's response number one. Okay. <laughs> response number two is, yes, I think you're right. And there are people for whom prayer is not going to work, who are not capable of opening their hearts in that way. And I think we have to respect the fact that there are lots of Jews like that. And even if you play the guitar, even if you play the guitar standing on your head, even if you introduce meditation and, spir- and the language of spirituality and all kinds of other things to the service, they're probably not going to be interested because the opening to prayer is simply not something they are capable of. 
for those people, I feel very strongly that we have to make the Beit Knesset, make the synagogue into a Beit Midrash. Mm. A lot of those people who will never pray do want to study. They're mm-hmm. intellectually curious. They want to know something about Judaism. Especially if learning is open and participatory, they will show up for that. Maybe someday that will lead them to prayer as well, maybe it won't. But I want to see the American synagogue as busy on a Tuesday night Beit Midrash right. night as it is on a Friday night or Shabbat morning service day. I think, by the way, synagogue life has been a validating your position and also succeeding, at least incrementally, if not better, in that direction. I, I hope uh, so. I go, perhaps as you do too, to many synagogues uh, across the region of the West and in America in general. I have lots of reasons to do so. And I find one of the most encouraging, even inspiring qualities of Reform synagogues is that I have yet to go to a Reform synagogue, a Reform synagogue, mind you, where this wasn't the case a generation ago. I have yet to go to such a synagogue where there is not a, some kind of Torah study going on either on Shabbos or Sunday, usually. Okay. Mm-hmm. Something is afoot. Yeah, I'm delighted to hear it. Uh, and yeah. that's good. Let's, let's do more of it. Exactly. And, and, and you speak of the fact that this, the, the, the language and the mechanism of prayer is not available to a certain subset of the Jewish population. Would you go so far as to say that study, this curiosity, this, this deep engagement, though not prayerful, is studious and it gets you to the same place? Is it an expression of a deeper thing that is in fact in common to both? Or is it something different? I think it gets you to a different place. It may also get you to a deep and interesting place. I don't think it's the same as enthusiastic prayers. Those are two different experiences. Oh, in some, in some very general way, maybe you can say they touch on the same, the same human depth. But mm-hmm. feel, they feel to me rather different in quality, and I think we ought to, we ought to recognize that. Fair but enough. it's also, but it's also legitimate. I mean, Torah tefillah. Right. You know, right. Judaism believes in both, and uh, and if, if if somebody's not ready for tefillah, then let's give them Torah. Right. Right. Or vice versa, yeah. as the yeah. Hasidim mm-hmm. would have said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another theme, which we spoke of, how the wings of prayer is not your phrase, but one that recurs in the tradition. So too, we might say the same thing of the phrase tikkun olam. Um, and it recurs. How do you say tikkun olam in Hebrew, somebody asked. <laughs> That's great. That's a great story. So tikkun olam, roughly as we understand it, as a kind of uh, social uh, impulse, probably originates with Isaac Luria, as opposed to the Talmudic use of tikkun olam, which is a, which is a more legalistic formulation for a certain practical proceeding. But Luria, in his imagery, he, he's not speaking of, of tzedakah in the, in the social good sense, but he is speaking of a reparation and an improvement of the state of the cosmic condition. By mystical contemplation. Yes, yes, hence, hence cosmic condition, hence my phrase. Yes. But, but nevertheless, an act of repairing, which does not apply to the Talmudic term. So let's just, for the sake of argument, say it starts with Luria and then discard it because, <laughs> not because I want to discard Tikkun Olam, God forbid, nor to make the association to Luria, but because I want to go in a different direction with Luria in a way that I think it's spoken about less and perhaps legitimately has fewer ripples in our consciousness. And I want to ask you, can we speak of Lurianic Kabbalah? Isaac Luria being the uh, 16th century mystic who reshaped the Kabbalistic tradition in the land of Israel and subsequent to his life was carried to Europe and proceeded to have profound literary and religious influence throughout Judaism. One way to approach understanding Luria, if we had to reduce it a bit, to say that 
he was motivated by the task of reconciling the coexistence, the paradoxical coexistence of the finite and the infinite. Yes, I think you could say that. You know, Kabbalah Tanari, Lurianic Kabbalah, is a very vast world, complicated literature, incredibly complex symbolism. Almost impenetrable. Almost almost impenetrable. I am, I am essentially a non-Lurianist in my approach to Kabbalah, and I can talk about that if you're interested. Yeah, I'm interested. But um, <laughs> you read Gershom Sholem, and Luria is about some very profound ideas. One you just mentioned, which is referred to as Tzimtzum, the relationship between infinity and infinity, the breaking of the vessels, the origins of evil, and so on. Those are the great Lurianic myths, according to Gershom Sholem. But if you open 95% of Lurianic literature books, you'll find it's about the the penetration of this level of the combined spherot in such and such a world, influenced by the five graces which come to them from another world, and the step-by-step-by-step reconstruction of the cosmos, which is overly ornate symbolism that ultimately began to crash in the 18th century, partly because it was too... Under its own weight. Under its own, under its own weight, yes. And very surprisingly, is now being revived in certain circles right. Right. in the 21st century. And it's very hard to revive it without being reductive or being so highly selective as to be as, as somehow to betray it, because it's so... I find that the Lurianic system does not work for me. I am much more interested in the Zohar and the early Hasidic teachings, both of which, the Zohar, which was pre-Lurianic, and a much simpler form of Kabbalistic symbolism, and the Hasidic, which essentially set the Lurianic aside and said, we can no longer understand that in our day. All you can do is break the heart and so on, in a much more directly emotional way into the mystical world. As we opened our conversation with yeah, Hasidic that's joy. Right. That's right. You say that the Zohar's symbolic system is simpler than Luria's. That's almost inevitable, given the complexity of Luria's and, and indeed the impenetrability in any language. I find it simply... The impenetrability actually becomes so ponderous as to cause me to question its coherence, which is a bit of a heresy to approach a, a great sage and actually query the sensical uh, or nonsensical nature of it. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm freed a bit by my Reformed tradition to think <laughs> in such ways. But I don't mean to do so disrespectfully. There's a certain amount of pain in, in coming to that conclusion. But, it, but I recognize that it's always incumbent upon us. I think there is a certain inner coherence, but it's, it's vast. And I'm not the person who understands it. I was reader on a doctoral dissertation at the Hebrew University a number of years ago by a fellow named Menachem Kalas, who I felt had really penetrated it and, and, and got it as a system very well. Mm. And I think there are there are works of Luriana Kabbalah. I'm thinking of Immanuel Chayriki in the 18th century Mishnah Chassidim. There were people who I think understood that old grand system. I'm not one of them. Yeah, okay, well, I'm glad I'm in good company. <laughs> you say that the Zoharic system is simpler than Luria's, and I think that's indisputable. I think that you could nevertheless say also of the Zoharic system that it risks being convoluted and it can appear convoluted and it, it though more penetrable it is still very very difficult and i tend also to reduce it to in fact the, the spherotic system is a ladder of sorts also intended as i see it to bridge the, the finite and the infinite and not just sinsum which is which is a very graphic way of, of accounting for the for the coexistence of finity and infinity but any neoplatonic system to me seems to be uh, troubled by the coexistence of finity and infinity, which from one logical perspective could be an insoluble paradox. 
Yes, I, I'd like to say it this way. The essential question of the mystic is, if all is one, why do there seem to be so many? Why do we seem to live <laughs> in a just, world of multiplicity? Yes. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. the Kabbalist says, well, this happened very gradually. Let me show you how the one opened into the ten, and how the ten have many faces, and the ten then open into a hundred and a thousand and so on. But these are the stages of the one manifesting itself as containing the many. But the Sfirot, for me, are those stages, but the language of the Sfirot is also a very interesting network of symbolic associations. I see the Sfirot, from a functional point of view, as kind of clusters of symbols. So that once you have a particular cluster of symbols, every time you see one member of the cluster, you're, you're reminded of all the, the others, yeah. you're called to all the others. And that creates an enrichment of language that gives the tradition of profundity mm. that it didn't have earlier. Right, right. And with uh, the new language comes new ideas and access. That's right. That's right. New access to a new kind of depth because symbolism is a new language that just enriches and deepens the tradition. I just gave a talk on this actually at a celebration of the completion of the Pritzker translation of the Zohar by mm. my dear friend Danny Matt. Yes. I was the shadchan between the Pritzkers and Danny worry, Matt, one of my one of my merits that I have in my in my life, and so I talked about that about that symbolism, about how the how the symbolic language works. I wrote a little book called A Guide to the Zohar, which is an introduction to the to the Pritzker Zohar, and I talk about it there. So you're involved in uh, more than an academic exercise. You are a major voice in American in the Judaism of the English speaking world in tackling some kind of connection between us and these traditions, which, if you're not an academic, are persistently remote. <laughs> Talk a little bit about how you bridge that, because it's tough. I've worked very hard to do that over the course of half a century. That's exactly who I am. I am both a scholar of the, of the Jewish mystical tradition and a theologian who wants to tap into those materials and use them to create a contemporary Judaism. And I have done that both by translation of the sources themselves, uh, sometimes selected inspiring translations, like my first little book, Your Word is Fire, which were readings for prayer from the Hasidic masters and used by many rabbis as introductions to prayer, to now a grand project of translating my favorite of the Hasidic text, the Mo'ori Naim, entirely. So there's translation of the sources themselves, but then there's also writing a kind of theological Uvra uh, based on those sources. So I began with a book called Seek My Face, which was a book about my own spiritual journey, and that culminated in Radical Judaism, which is a which is my own theological statement. I just last year published an expanded, rewritten version of Radical Judaism in Hebrew, Yadut So it's now for the Israeli world too, the Hebrew-speaking world too. So I'm trying to create a new theology, and. Uh, to some extent also a social platform for what I call a contemporary neo-Hasidic Judaism. That's what I, I am, a neo-Hasidic Jew. Mm. Uh, my dear student uh, Ariel Mays and I have just completed two volumes of essays called A New Hasidism, which JPS will put out next year. Uh, a New Hasidism, the first volume is A New Hasidism Roots, going back to Buber and Hillel Zeitlin and what had the emergence of neo-Hasidism. And the second volume, Neo New Hasidism Branches, our own writings, the writings of various other people, a neo-Hasidic approach to various issues in Jewish life today. A neo-Hasidic reading of, uh, of psychotherapy, of ecology, mm -hmm. of leadership, of various 
kinds of issues. So we are trying to put forth neo-Hasidism as a, as a kind of approach to Judaism. That, of course, cuts across denominational lines. Yes, yes, of course. Maze is quite orthodox. I'm in some ways observant, liberal, without liking the, the label conservative that I left behind many years ago. But among the readers of this work, hopefully, will be Reformed Jews and Orthodox sure, Jews and everything sure, that between, I know there already are. Because it's yeah. a spiritual approach. It's not a how much you need to observe approach. Yes, yes. Do you find yourself always struggling against the risk of an epigrammatic, distilled and hence oversimplified digestion of these terribly deep systems? That's the essential question. How do you make it accessible to people without watering it down and trivializing it? I watch what the Kabbalah Center people did, and I think they did all the wrong things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they took Kabbalah. They want. They had a nice idea. Let's make Kabbalah accessible to people. Right. And they did it completely wrong, as far as I'm concerned. But the question is still a challenge. How do you make it accessible? Keep it on a high spiritual and intellectual level, and at the same time, not expect people to all study Hebrew and be right. able to read the right. sources in the original and so on before they get there. It's, that's, that's the challenge, and I've tried to do it as well as I can. Yes, well, with, with tremendous effect, I might add. Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast. Selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. You are both an historian and an historiographer of Hasidism. You, you ponder what people have written about Hasidism as well as you ponder Hasidism itself. Have you seen the new history that just came out? No. Hasidism and new history, 800 pages, Princeton. It was my project, but I gave it up and left it for others, but I, I have some involvement with it, yeah. So First grand history of the whole Hasidic movement that's ever been written. I look forward to it, and I'm not aware of it. But one of the major themes that you come to is this tension-slash-balance between tradition and innovation, uh, which, of course, the Hasidim lived and instantiated, not only spiritually but politically, etc. That is a terribly resonant theme for Reformed Jews. And with the movemental specificity of the Reform movement in mind, can you uh, think out loud with me about some of the resonances of Hasidism? When I first went to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, where I was dean and then president for 10 years, I had no prior association with the Reconstructionist movement, but I looked into the writings of Mordechai Kaplan mm. and spent the a good, of bit of the, time with him. This was the, the, the founder, spiritual, founder the spiritual. of Reconstructionism. And I found an article of his published in the Reconstructionist magazine in 1942, before Reconstructionism was a movement. Mm-hmm. And he said, people think there are three movements in Judaism, Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform, but in fact there are four. The fourth is Hasidism. <laughs> and Reconstructionism is most like Hasidism. And mm. I was shocked and delighted that Kaplan, who was very much a Lithuanian uh, rationalist, rationalist and so yeah, on, would right. say that. And he, he said, here's what I mean. 
Hasidism is a maximalist Judaism, maximally demanding. We want people, it wants people to be involved in their Jewish life all the time, not just one hour a week. It doesn't settle for minimalism. Our maximalism will be entirely different than the maximalism chosen by Hasidism. It will be a different kind of maximalism, including tikkun olam, including universal issues, including all kinds of different kinds of Jewish learning, including Zionism and the pioneering spirit. Kaplan was very much a sure. Zionist. Sure. Um, but it's still a maximalist Judaism. So that's my message to the Reform Movement. I could ideologically be very close to Reform Judaism in terms of freedom of choice, in terms of, in terms of the, many of the wonderful values in the movement, but the settling for minimalism. I'm only a Reform Jew, therefore I don't have to do that, therefore I don't have to read that, therefore mm. I don't have to consider that, because I'm Reform after all, mm. is so deeply culturally ingrained. Yeah, there's, there's a sociology a, there's an of minimalism. ongoing battle that the movement has to fight against it, to make Reform Judaism a really serious Reform Judaism. And I think that I think that's been growing in the last several it decades. Has. I'm that's delighted at that growth. The study groups that I see... Absolutely, absolutely. I'm completely supportive and all for it. And, uh, quite a number of my students are now going to serve as both as interns and rabbis in Reform congregations, and I, I'm thrilled with that. But I think that's the ongoing struggle with the movement, to, to uh, move away from reform, meaning the acceptance of Jewish minimalism. I think all of us have characterologically ingrained struggles that we, because of our personalities, we, we, we revisit. Even as we change and grow, there are certain uh, spiritual, emotional threads to our being that persist. There are other types of challenges we also face which are more situational, more of the moment, more characteristic of the stage we're in, of life, of relationship, or what have you. Would you be willing to reveal to us your own, Arthur Green's own urgent today spiritual or emotional preoccupations? What's, what's, what's on your mind? Well, since you asked for something personal, I have to say to you, you're talking to me three months after the passing of my wife of 50 years. So that's, uh, that's, that's, that's what's on my mind. And, uh, and I'm 76 years old, mm. so the question of legacy is very much on my mind. What am I still going to do with the years left that are, that are good and productive and creative? And how do I fill that great void that has been left in my life? So those are the two things that are there, and my... My spiritual life is all about both of those, and that is the that is the current life stage. I'm blessed with a wonderful daughter and one or two wonderful grandchildren who live nearby, mm-hmm. and I'm blessed with the fact that I am still teaching and very much involved with students and have, over the years, I would say, treated my students very well and they treat me very well now and they are mm-hmm. they are something like extended family to me also. That's wonderful. So that's that's a, a great gift. But it's the issues of how you deal with this stage in life that are very much on the table in my daily life today. You know, your concerns uh, echo in the organizational world that I live in quite a bit. And I'm pleased to say that um, my colleagues in the reform movement and beyond are learning to articulate communal priorities much more effectively than in the past, I think, with respect to the the questions of aging and death and dying, uh, with a lot of maturity and love and, and crucially, um, organizational heft and, and results. 
you know, communities of action and priorities of resources? I think so. We have all uh, looked somewhat admiringly and with a bit of envy at what goes on in the modern Orthodox community, yeah. where there's a very strong sense of of hevreshaft, of community, and people are there for one another in such things as Bikur Cholim, visiting the sick and, and taking care of people's shivas and so on. There's a very strong sense of community. You know I'm an advocate of the Chavura movement. I'm going to speak this afternoon here about the 50th anniversary of the Chavura. Uh-huh. And for me, bringing Chavurot into liberal Judaism, including Reform Judaism, was very much about creating that sense of of network of mutual support and and caring communities within the framework of larger synagogues and synagogues where people are less involved. So I think that's that's been a tremendous change in growth in the yeah. liberal movements. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, something I've experienced in my own lifetime quite a bit. Moving from the personal to the sociological, what do you think is the most pressing concern that the Jewish community faces? Let's narrow it a little bit. Let's say American Judaism. Uh, what what's what's on our plate? What do we need to tackle? If I can mix my metaphors. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so tackling a plate sounds like a good yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tucking in, tackling. Uh, what, what, what ought we be paying attention to, first and foremost? Rediscovering the spiritual vitality of our tradition. Creating a Jewish language that will speak to people's real religious needs. Because I see in this generation, and I've even seen over the course of the past two or three generations, a significant numbers of people who are seekers, who are looking for some kind of deeper approach to what life is about and why we are here and where we are going, um, related to issues that rabbis know well of, of things like marriage and family and love and death, but also going beyond them and just, I would say, the quest for meaning. I've seen now two or three generations of many of the finest seeking minds among American Jews turning away from Judaism. Uh, toward various Eastern traditions, toward various other kinds of spiritual languages, because they don't think Judaism has anything to say to them, because they think Judaism is a kind of empty, vacuous, or legalistic, or or, 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 or uh, legalistic, or, or something, tribal, or, yeah, yeah, or just tribal tradition, and recovery of the great spiritual language. Some of the things we've been talking about coming out of the mystical tradition and so on. And when I give a popular lecture in synagogues, I now talk about how. Uh, as a historian, you appreciate this. 200 years ago, Jews created Jews who were coming out of the ghetto for the first time created a new term that had never existed in Judaism before, and that was called mainstream Judaism. You can even trace it to a little essay published in the, date, in the second decade of the 19th century, the Judentum in Hauptströmung, and Judaism in its mainstreams. That's where the notion of mainstream came from. And mainstream, when you create a mainstream, you do it in order to exclude something. The notion of mainstream Judaism was created in order to exclude all those things that westernizing, modernizing Jews found embarrassing in the tradition. Chief among them was the mystical tradition which was just uncomfortable for people who wanted to see Judaism as modern, modern, rational, rational, ethical monotheism, something any follower of Immanuel Kant could take on. Inoffensive, yes. Mendelssohn saying the only difference between us and you is that we have some different customs and ceremonies, but our truth is the same. Well, the mystical tradition was offensive. Now, 200 years later, we find Jews scrambling to reaccess that tradition, to include it in the mainstream. And that's been going on there for the last 20 or 30 sure. years. 
That ranges from the, I would say, the lowest level of that is the Kabbalah centers. The highest level is the Stanford translation of the Zohar in 12 volumes. Uh, how, how much higher intellectual <laughs> respectability can you get than that? The course is now taught in all our rabbinical schools. Yes, it is. Uh, when I was a JTS student 50-some years ago, Abraham Joshua Heschel was not allowed to teach regular courses on Hasidism because Hasidism was not mainstream Judaism. He was told that. And isn't there a famous story of is it Saul Lieberman who said that the study of mysticism is serious, but mysticism is mysticism is nonsense, but the history of nonsense is is is, is, is scholarship. Is scholarship. Right, right, yes, right. that's right. That kind of attitude. Now that took a long time to disappear, but it has disappeared. And and there and at HUC and every place, I'm happy to say there are faculty members teaching courses yeah. in this part of the tradition. I for years worked with the Institute of Jewish Spirituality teaching rabbis who regretted not having had this in their rabbinic education. How do I learn something about Jewish spirituality, which was missing from my rabbinic education? Can you imagine that? No, I'm familiar with the phenomenon. Right, but it was missing from rabbinic education. That's changing now. So the question is, how do we how do we find this this language that will uh, that will tell Jews, yes, there is something vital and intellectually and spiritually exciting in this tradition. That's what I've devoted all the years to. And I still think it's an urgent task. I don't think I've I don't think I've accomplished that task, and now it's over right, right. by any means. So certainly, certainly, you've moved the ball. Conveying that to an educated Jewish lady, because one of the problems we have is that you know almost all of our Jews in North America now are university graduates. You walk into a liberal synagogue, large numbers have graduate degrees. Yeah, they, sure. you, one should be able to approach them. One has to approach them on a high intellectual level. And yet, in terms of Jewish knowledge, they are virtually illiterate. They are, you know, almost, uh, indeed, some of them, when you see them reading from the transliteration when they have an aliyah to the Torah, Baruch Shatah, you know that they are hopelessly illiterate, while at the same time, they are so well-educated. So how do you create a language that will speak to those people and help them overcome the embarrassment of that illiteracy, which is yes. a, an issue for many of them. Yeah, especially for the men, but yes, it's yes, a, it's yes, a yes. Both, no, women too, women who women who weren't given a Jewish education because girls didn't have to learn that. In the, in the more traditional communities, you find that as well. I was sent to Hebrew school so that there'd be a, a bar mitzvah for my grandparents. My sister was not given a day of Jewish education because the grandparents didn't care about that. So that's that's also there. That's also a piece. So I think that, that, that recovery and that sense that there is something spiritually vital and exciting about this tradition is what we have to convey. And we have to create a serious Jewish laity. One of the sicknesses in American Jewish life is that if you take Judaism seriously, you have three choices. You can become a rabbi, you can become orthodox, or you can find another tradition. Oh, I had begged to differ. Oh, serious, please, committed, me. educated Jewish laity is still hard to find. If you, if your measure is a kind of literacy, which you are invoking, which is, which is a, 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 at least decoding Hebrew and knowing the matbeit filah, the, the sequence of, of prayer, and if you're speaking about that kind of functional literacy, maybe I could take your point. At least partially, but even then, I think I would disagree. You you go to a, a conservative shul routinely. The morning minyanim will be led by literate, engaged mm-hmm. laity all the time. If you expand your definition of what serious is, the way you said it, to some of the things that you yourself have defined as a spiritual connectedness, an appreciation of a profound wellspring of meaning and living Jewishly, 
then that doesn't necessarily these days what with translations thank you Arthur mm -hmm. Green mm -hmm. and any number of other people uh, you have access to and you can be meaningfully engaged then reform laity can and often are very serious and very motivated and with real consequences meaning that the life that they live Jewishly in the synagogue and at home is materially defined by what you're seeking. So, so I, I, I want to push back I'm, on the three choices. I, I, I'm happy to accept your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Then we'll then we'll then we'll have an, op an optimistic uh, conversation. In closing, what would you want to make sure gets in this interview? What does the audience need to hear from you? We have been very good about keeping the topic to the world of Jewish spirituality, Hasidism, history all kinds of innocent subjects which we, can, <laughs> uh, which we can share our delight in. I don't think I can let this go without some reference to the very difficult times politically and uh, otherwise in which we live. Uh, whether it's a question of, our, of the leadership of this country, the utter cynicism that I find in, the, in, in, polit in circles of political leadership, my terrible worry about a self-destructive course that I feel the leadership of the State of Israel is taking. I say that as a, as a deep and loving, committed Zionist, but one very worried about the future because of, because of some long series of bad decisions. Uh, those are the things that really keep me awake at night. And uh, to read the tradition in such a way that has something significant and critical to say about those elements of our life today can't be set aside. So let's close wishing then that we bring those lessons of our tradition into our civic life as well as our spiritual home and communal lives and uh, continue the work. Arthur Green, thank you so much for spending the time and the wonderful conversation. It's really been a pleasure. Very nice indeed to be here with you. Thank you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.